G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. As in previous weeks, I, I just want to put a little plug in here that the clarity of the recording isn't as good as when we're doing it in the CFRC studio. But of course, because of the restrictions with COVID-19, we can't be there. But we found alternative methods because we didn't want to stop these recordings. And our students are putting their hands up to say, we want to come on grad chat and spread the word. So here we are. But in case sometimes things may get a little quiet or a bit crackly, don't worry about it. We will fix it up as best we can. But the main thing is we wanted you to hear this about this incredible research that our students are doing. So with that being said, I would like to introduce you to Liv Rondo, who is doing a Master of Education under the supervision of Dr. Lindsay Morecambe. Welcome to Grad Chat, Liv. Thank you so much for having me, Colette. Well, it's great to have you. In fact, it was interesting. Uh, I think, think it was last year, about November last year, I think it was. Well, it could have been this year. Time flies. I got to meet Liv because she was doing a presentation for part of our Indigenous Research Studies Day and it was great to listen to Liv then and so when she said she'd love to come on the Grad Chat show I thought yes because I think much more many more people need to hear about the great work that Liv is doing so I really appreciate you you coming on today. Thank you so much Claire. Yeah that was a great presentation and I got the opportunity to listen to a lot of other Indigenous scholars and people speak. So um, thank you for having me to that. And also thank you for having me on here as well. <laughs> oh, it's no problem at all. And if you wouldn't mind, Liv, could you give us a bit of a background about yourself first to sort of put things in context about your research? Sure. So I came to the Faculty of Education actually in 2018, so about two years ago. And I was pursuing my Bachelor of Education at the time in the Aboriginal Teacher Education Program. Right. And uh, in that program, that's where I met Lindsay Morcom, who is now my supervisor. And Lindsay and I just built a great relationship. And I had the opportunity to work with a lot of other Indigenous faculty and staff, elders and residents like Deb. And it was just a really great community that I fell in love with and I didn't want to be. <laughs> so when my uh, Bachelor of Education was up, I said, okay, I'll stay on and do a master's. And so now I'm doing my Master of Ed. And uh, I was actually also just hired as the program manager for the ATEP program. Which is um, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. So it looks like I'm here for a while, which is, I'm not complaining about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who don't know, ATEP is the Aboriginal Teacher Education Program at Queen's. Yes, yes. It's a program that we offer at the Faculty of Education. And I, I really encourage if anybody's interested in learning more about Aboriginal education or uh, wants to take that as their concentration when they come to do their Bachelor of Education, it is a great community of people. And all of the candidates that I've met in that program have also been lovely. So Liv, it's, it's great that you're working as part of ATEP or the Aboriginal Teacher Education Program at Queen's, but but is this program specifically for Indigenous teachers, teacher candidates, or is it for any teacher candidate? 
So our program is for any teacher candidate. Indigenous and non-Indigenous candidates can both participate in our program, which I think is great because it's so important for Indigenous candidates to have the opportunity to be exposed to yes. language and culture and different things like that and mm -hmm. be able to be educated by other Indigenous scholars. It really makes a big difference. I know it did for me. And it's a good opportunity as well for our non-Indigenous allies and teacher candidates to learn a little bit more about Indigenous culture and language. So we have multiple programs that we run. One is community-based that happens in Manitoulin North Shore. We're actually looking at starting a new one in Meshkegawak territory, which is really exciting. I'm sorry, where is that? So it's like near Moosini Moose Factory. Okay. North Ontario, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting. And then we also have our campus-based one, which uh, happens here in Kingston. And some students enroll in the Aboriginal Teacher Education Program, but once you come to the Faculty of Education, you have the opportunity to concentrate in something. At that point, some students choose to concentrate in the ATEP program, and some choose to concentrate in different things like um, at-risk youth and things like that. It sounds fascinating. I mean, education has just changed so much and all these other opportunities now, uh, it's, it's so great that we're pushing this forward. So I'm glad you're a part of all of that. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm really excited about the different initiatives that are taken at Queen's and are happen happening across Turtle Island, really. There's so many great things happening in relation to Indigenous education, and I'm just happy I can be a small part of it. Well, and, it's, and one could easily say it's about time, isn't it, that uh, we have a bit more focus. Yes, exactly. So you've got the right people in, like you, like yourself to help move that forward. And like you said, you might just be a small part, but I think you're also a very big part of uh, doing this teacher education. Oh, thank you so much. So I guess we should get on to your research because that's why you're here. And I'm sure everything you're doing in your research is going to help also with some of the programs that you've been working in. And your research topic is language revitalization. So can you give us a bit of an overview of what you're, you know, how you're putting together your research, um, you know, the purpose, et cetera, and, and rationale and, and what have you. And then I've got some very specific questions I actually do want to ask you. <laughs> so, yeah, like you said, my research is in language revitalization. So language revitalization, you might also sometimes hear called uh, language revival or reversing language shift. Right. Um, but it all means the same thing. Um, it's just an attempt to halt or reverse the decline of language or to revive one that might have already gone extinct. So my work that I am researching is in a school uh, in the Kingston community. And what we do is um, the Kingston Indigenous Language Nest, in partnership with the school board, has developed an Anishinaabe Moan language program that was introduced into primary schools in the area. Right. And so my methodology kind of looks at sampling participants of educators whose classes we participated in through that program and asking them different questions about the program in general. So some of those questions might be, for example, how does the language program benefit Indigenous students or non-Indigenous students in your classroom? How can we further support language learning in the community? Um, what was their experience in the language program and how comfortable would they feel continuing this type of education? Since we're only in there for three weeks, it's really important that we kind of help to give that foundation and um, to help educators feel comfortable to move forward and continue to infuse that Indigenous education into their classrooms. So my question to you on this is, 
uh, you talked about it was in primary school, but how many schools are you looking at there? So the the research took place in two schools in the area. Um, of course, it would be great to be able to expand it to um, more schools in the future. Right. Um, as we're in this time right now with the global pandemic, unfortunately, that won't happen probably this year. But in the future, I really do hope that we will be able to continue to implement the program into those schools again, because you always get new classes and right. new students who can participate in it. And even for the educators who've already participated in the past, a lot of the feedback that we've gotten is, you know, they learn something new every single time. So it's really great to be able to revisit those educators and meet new students and see the old students because even when I was in the schools this year, you would be walking in the hallway and the kids would remember you from last year. Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah, and so they would be like, oh, Bojo, Bojo. <laughs> and Bojo is hello in Anishinaabe Moan. So they really pick up on it quickly and they remember your face and they remember participating in it. So that was really nice to hear the language and to see them so excited to see us. That's interesting too. And did you pick primary schools because their learning capacity for languages is really good at that level, at that age group? Or is that just because they were the schools that were interested in bringing the program? Yeah, so the program ran last year when I was in my Bachelor of Education. And I actually participated in a little bit of the program doing my alternative practicum at the faculty. Right. And then this year is when I kind of started taking on the research role. So I'm not sure the exact reason why primary schools were picked. But I do believe that it is important for primary schools, uh, especially because like you said, children are so consuming to language and different things mm -hmm. like that. They're like little sponges. <laughs> like, well, they are. Yeah. And it's really great, too, because it introduces it at a, a younger age. And so they're, they're becoming accustomed to having Indigenous people in the classroom and uh, learning Indigenous languages. And I think it's really important at that young age that they um, start to be introduced to that. In that introduced way. and exposed to different cultures and things, right? I mean, I, I, I feel it's super really, really important to do it, like you said, early rather than later, before they get too many other ideas in their heads. Yes, exactly. It's probably not a nice way of saying it, but there we go. <laughs> yes. That's just that's just the way I do it. Now, um, <laughs> now, some of the questions that we've written down here, I mean, the first one you kind of touched on was, what is language revitalization and how does it work towards preserving indigenous languages and cultures? Because, I mean, how many indigenous languages are there in Canada or Turtle Island, as you, you mentioned? So currently the number of indigenous languages that I'm aware of, there's around 60. Some re researchers say that that's of a previous 300 indigenous languages that did exist and were being spoken. So this really stresses that like these 60 languages are on the brink of extinction. And so it is important that not only Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous people as well are helping to work towards um, revitalizing these languages. Right, right. And then, so how does Anishinaabe language, the program, benefit both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students? Because I think that's, that's the important thing, because I'm sure your research will find this out what an Indigenous person, um, student may find from the program could be totally different to what a non-Indigenous student would, would take from it. Yes, exactly. So 
I think one of the benefits that Indigenous students gain from the Anishinaabe language program is that exposure to um, having Indigenous people in the classroom and having their culture, like being surrounded by their culture and uh, getting to know because we do this in an urban area, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of children who grow up urban, in some cases, not all, but in most cases, they don't have a lot of exposure in school or sometimes even in their home life um, to Indigenous culture. And so when we come in and we bring in this program, they're getting that exposure to culture um, and they're learning in different ways that are not so Eurocentric focused. Right. And it also helps with teachers and organizers to identify the multiple ways in which Indigenous children benefit from this. Like I said, that cultural growth. Sometimes you find, I found in my, when I was doing my action research and observing, there would be kids who were participating and they were so active and they were so excited. And teachers would say, wow, like I've never seen this kid so engaged. That's great. Yeah, so it's really great to be able to see those kinds of things. And you really see, especially in the students who you kind of know going in who have completed the self-identification process. So you know that those students identify as Indigenous. Right. Um, You really see those young people, their increase in self-esteem and cultural pride really comes out. Right. Um, And they want to take on leadership roles in the program and planning and helping others in their classrooms. So that's really great to see. And it's also great because you see the the opposite of that with children who have not previously identified. But now that they've been exposed to this program, you'll hear them kind of come back in a few days or the next day and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm Indigenous or I don't really know much, but I want to learn more. Right. Um, And so it kind of opens up that conversation and creates that culturally safe space for us and educators to have those conversations with students and to engage in that cultural experience. I think a couple questions, and I have to remember the second one before I forget, but the first one is you mentioned Indigenous teachers are giving doing this program, but I guess that's a bit of a drawback, a potential drawback for the program if you want to expand it into other schools. Of Do you have enough Indigenous teachers to be able to go into each of the schools? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, right now we have uh, one teacher who goes in and does, uh, he he facilitates the program. And in every program, we also have another Indigenous person there with them. So usually it'll be the one person leading the program and then we'll have an Indigenous community member or a grandmother or elder come in and help with the different teachings and language. And then, of course, this year I was there as well, so I was also able to bring in that Indigenous presence. That being said, we all do so many wonderful things in the community as it relates to Indigenous education and events and different things like that. So... It is hard to get, you know, the people who are already doing so much to go yes, out be- more. So because it, it wouldn't be the same as a non-Indigenous teacher doing it, right? I mean, the whole the whole point is that they get they get taught by the people who really don't, not just know the information but understand it and like really it's embedded in their psyche, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think that even if it was to be a non-Indigenous person running the program, it is important that that person. Obviously, if they're running the program, they've been welcomed in by the community right. um, and they're educated on the topic and they want to be involved and they've shown a level of care and respect for the culture. And a lot of non-Indigenous people have been adopted into Indigenous communities. And so right. as far as I'm concerned, like you're one of us now. 
That's um, great. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um, like we do really try hard to have the program be run, even if we have non-Indigenous people participating. Why I said we, we will have like an elder or an auntie or right. a grandmother come in, or I was there as the researcher. And so we bring in that Indigenous presence. And you also see the ability for non-Indigenous people to role model how to be great allies. Right. So I think that's important for children to see as well. So it's a really good collaboration then, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And then with the, the, you were saying with the students, there's some Indigenous students who really haven't had much of their their culture at, at home for whatever reason, particularly those living in an urban environment. It's, it's great to hear that some of them are sort of going, oh, well, well this is me and I can I can learn more about me. Yeah, it's really, I can't even really put it into words. It's just something you have to see and experience. Uh Because I know, even for me, I had that awakening in university. And that happened when I was exposed to the ATEP program and working with Lindsay and working with Deb and Jen and Paul and all these other amazing people at the Faculty of Education who have Uh really helped me to recognize like my own Indigenous identity and say like, yeah, this is my culture and it is something I'm proud of. And I see my own confidence and self-esteem like go way up as well. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So I, I really understand and I empathize with how those students are feeling at a young age. And I'm so happy that they have the opportunity to experience that then and grow into their culture and learn new things as they grow up. Well, I think that's um, also comes to the next question of how can naturalizing Indigenous knowledge deconstruct the Eurocentric belief of what is curriculum because I mean curriculum can change and it depends on who's putting it together sometimes as to what gets taught Um, and this clearly is a way of bringing in new elements to so-called traditional traditional as as you put it here Eurocentric curriculum so how do you think um, how do you think that's working with the with the program you've got? Yeah, so I think by introducing programs like this, um, whether it be a language program or having somebody come into your class to do a guest lecture or um, a traditional art or sing songs, storytelling, it all works to integrate language and culture into different ways. And it's a great place to start for educators. And especially with this program that we run, we bring in a lot of Indigenous culture uh, through food, language, traditional arts, land-based learning, introducing Indigenous medicines. Right. Um, it's a place, uh, it places a focus on learning through storytelling as well. I uh, love storytelling. Yeah, and that's a really big part of learning through Indigenous culture was storytelling and still is storytelling. So that's a really important piece of it. And I think when educators and and students see this, it begins to open up the conversation about all the different ways that education can look and feel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to always be assessments or different things like that. There can be different forms of assessments and different ways of learning that are still just as valuable and also work to engage students. And I think one of the important parts about that too is that a way that that benefits our non-Indigenous learners in those classrooms is from a young age, these students are not being exposed to stereotypes and racisms that right. adults often internalize about Indigenous people. So it's creating a positive space and empowering the experience of Indigenous culture and language at a young age. And so these children are less likely to develop racist attitudes later in life, which I think is really important. Oh, it's very, very important. And 
I love the way you talk about storytelling because I was always a big one for reading books. And of course, when I was going through primary school, you always got given a book a week to go home and read and, and what have you. I would love to have had books on, say, um, you know, Aboriginal Dreamtime, being Australian, um, Aboriginal Dreamtime stories because they're, they're absolutely fascinating. And I imagine there's some great books that you you have got in, in various languages that perhaps they could take home too. Does that happen? Or even if it's not in your the Indigenous language, maybe it's still in English or French, for instance, but it's talking about Indigenous ways. Yeah, we, we always try to incorporate some kind of art form or hands-on learning that children can do and take home to their parents or proudly display in the classroom. <laughs> right. A lot of that will always have um, the Anishinaabe Moan words on it. Um, so that's a good reinforcement for uh, students to see it every day um, up in their classroom and remind themselves of that great experience that they had. Yeah. Um, and I think like that's part of it too, why they remember you when you come back is because it's so hands-on and it's so engaged and they love learning something new and they love learning the language. And so um, that's why you get them coming up to you and saying, oh, bojo. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. And, and hands-on really works, speaks for me too, rather than just having coming something coming out of a textbook being actually you know the practical side of it I think really helps a lot in learning so so how can we support further language learning in our communities to create more fluent speakers because that must be difficult because it's not like for instance Anishinaabe is on the television every day or on the radio every day so how how do we sort of help get the language out there more more seen more and heard more yeah, I think there's so many different ways that um, language can be incorporated into everyday life. Some of the things that I always suggest to people is we have a wonderful language nest here in Kingston. Right. Um, so that's the Kingston Indigenous Languages Nest. And we have a lot of Anishinaabe Moan and Cree and Mohawk speakers who come, but it's open to all members of the community. So Indigenous or non-Indigenous, and it's open to all languages. So you don't have to be coming to learn Anishinaabe Moan or Cree or Mohawk. You can bring in your own language if you're starting to learn or you're a speaker everybody is always welcome so I really encourage people to join different things like that in their own communities there's also wonderful language immersion programs or general language programming that happens in communities a lot so I always encourage people to sign up for those opportunities as well is there and excuse my ignorance here but is there a radio show at all and if not have you thought about your your community group putting a radio show on CFRC. Yeah, so I saw, I'm always like, I was there <laughs> on the internet lurking around, like what language things are happening. And um, I noticed that there's so many um, wonderful Indigenous people who are putting up great YouTube videos, actually. Oh, good. Um, yeah, and so um, there's a lot of different videos on pretty much everything from like the basics to um, different little stories and fables in the language. A lot of them will incorporate some English and some um, Indigenous languages. And so there's kind of something for everybody out there on, on the great worldwide web. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in Ganawake, I know they do have a radio talk show there that I think they incorporate uh, the Mohawk language into as well quite a bit. Right, right. Um, so there are things like that out there. Um, nothing in Kingston that I know of, but that would be a great idea. Well, see, when we're allowed back on campus properly, what we should do is is get some of, if if the children have permission, get some of the children who have been learning to come on the radio show. 
yeah, and, and talk about their experience and then also speak a little bit for us and, and things like that. Yeah, that would be great. I think some of them would really jump at that opportunity. And of course, uh, Faculty of Education has their podagogy, right, as well. Yeah. You could do you could do something on that. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. And I think in the interim, like, because we aren't able to gather and everything right now, I've been thinking a lot about how do we support language learning um, in this time of pandemic? Yes. Um, because so much of it is community-based and getting together and being able to speak to each other and learning that way. And so some of the things I would suggest to people are, I know I try my best to label everything and ev- anything in my house or my office. <laughs> and so that's really great to do because you're seeing it every day. And I think even for people who are just learning, like learning to say hello or greet somebody, that's a great place to start. It um, is. It is. Yeah. So, so, so with that, because I know the Faculty of Education in this pandemic have got a lot of resources for people who, for, for teachers as well as for parents really who are homeschooling. And, yeah. you know, there is a, a section on, on an Indigenous section there too. So I think people should really go and have a look at what the Faculty of Education have put up there. Yes, there's so many great resources on that website um, that I would really recommend people check out. And I also, spoiler alert, <laughs> I'm working on some language resources to share with people as well. So I'm hoping that Brilliant. they'll be up there soon. So yeah, that's a great website to check out and uh, to get learning even in this time. So, so, and I guess that segues into how can we support teachers in infusing Indigenous content into their classrooms, whether it be remotely right now or when we're back um, in person? Yeah, so one thing I always try to encourage educators to do is collaborate with Indigenous community members. I think that's one of the most important ways that we can continue to support teachers in infusing that Indigenous content. So many educators that I know have had experiences where maybe they didn't know how to do something or they were scared of culturally appropriating. Well, then sometimes they don't do anything at all out of that fear of not wanting to appropriate or do something wrong. And I think it's really important that even in my own teachings, like I've always been taught to have a good mind and to approach everything with kindness and understanding and peace. And so even if you're afraid- Great philosophy. Yeah. (laughs) So even if you're scared of appropriating or you're scared of doing different things, I always try to encourage teachers that even if you do do something and you do it wrong, learn from it and move on. Um, Right. You are trying and it does come from a good place. And so that's really important. So so how, but how do they, how do they make first contact, so to speak? How do they, how do they find who in their um, community could help them? Yeah, so pretty much every board has an Indigenous education lead working with the okay. board. So I always encourage educators to reach out to that person first, because typically those people will have made connections with Indigenous community members. Right. Um, and so they can kind of do that work of introducing you to those people and having them come into your classroom or do different things with your students. Right. Um, a lot of Indigenous communities, like I know in Kingston, we have Kingston Aboriginal Community Information Network, so KSIN. Right. Um, So that is an open page on Facebook that you can go to and you can see the different things that are happening in the Kingston community in relation to Indigenous education and events and different things like that. And so usually you can kind of feel out the different people that you might want to approach um, or the different things that you might want to go to and begin to meet people and build those relationships in person. And so that's a great community to join as well. 
do you think there will come a time when something like indigenous language learning or the part of this language revitalization will be part of everyday curriculum? Like it used to be, it used to be, you have an opportunity to learn French or German. Um, this was in my day, of course, a long time ago, and that wasn't, and it's not in Canada. But you had those opportunities. Now in Australia, rather than French and German, it's now um, Chinese and Japanese and Indonesian. So do you think there'll come a time in Canada where it is actually part of the curriculum, particularly in primary school or elementary school, sorry, where the students get a, a taste of Indigenous language? particularly for the, the Indigenous language that's near their, nearest their community? Yeah, I really, really hope so. Like, um, that's definitely a goal. And I think it's somewhere that reconciliation is really heading towards those kinds of things. And right. when I've talked to educators about the program, a lot of them really comment on, like, I really wish, like, we could have this instead of French or maybe have it as an option for students. So not necessarily making French mandatory, but if they would rather participate in Anishinaabe Moan for that language credit, I think that would be wonderful to see. Um, and we see it happening at universities, like here in... yes. Yeah, here at Queen's, we have a Mohawk language class and we have Anishinaabe Moan. We had a Nuktitut and I know we're looking for other languages to infuse into our course offerings. So we see it slowly starting to happen, but I'm hoping in a few years from now that it will be an option for our students in primary school. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of it because it's, it's fascinating and I love hearing about all the work that you've been doing and particularly also with what uh, Dr. Morecambe has been doing as well. Um, great people to push this to the forefront and for us all to listen and, and to learn from. So thank you very much for doing that for us all. Thank you so much, Claude. That really means a lot to me and I'm sure it means a lot to Lindsay as well. Well, we're very lucky here that we have some great people and uh, whatever we can do to help push some of the research that you're doing forward, I love it because I learn heaps myself, as you always know. <laughs> I, I get uh, very spoiled working at a university because mm -hmm. I meet some incredible people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I have met some of my lifelong friends here at the university and people who are interested in similar things to me and especially working with Lindsay has been so great because... Mm -hmm. As we know, language is so connected to culture. And so when we work yes. to realize the language, we're also ensuring that the culture is kept alive and is being passed down to future generations. So um, I hope that I can be that role model on people <laughs> who are younger than me, as Lindsay has been for me. So I really um, just value Well, you're starting off really well, Liv, so keep going. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid we're going to have to call it quits there, as I say, because we've come to the end of our show. But I really do appreciate you coming on, Liv, and, and sharing some of that for us, because I know a lot of the parents would be extremely interested in, in what you've been doing. And uh, hopefully, like I said, it'll become a natural part of the curriculum in, in the future. Yes. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you again. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.